Okay. So we read in verses 12 to 13. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So here he is. Hostility has been growing and growing and growing. And Luke makes this couple points clear. Don't miss it. There's one particular night. But he says, in these days. In general, Jesus went away from other human beings. And he got alone with the Father. And it seems that his pattern was more than ten minutes. There's this one particular night he makes it clear. All night long. This prayer thing throughout Luke, as we have seen, has, has been Jesus' pattern. At, at His baptism, the text says, while He was praying. After ministry all night at Peter's house, healing the sick, it says, He slipped away. Get away, no, where no one can find you. And pray. Chapter 5, verse 16, after healing the leper, the text says somewhere, where is it? He would withdraw to desolate places to pray. Now, I don't, I just, it's so, cultures are different. People were raised in cultures. People's personalities are different. It's really hard for me to imagine that what we would see for those hours through the night that Jesus merely just sat there. I just, I, he might have. It's just hard for me. If we had a video on him, he might have looked like a homeless person. You know how they sometimes start talking to themselves. Sometimes getting away from other human beings. There's a prayer where we pray together, and we did that as a church yesterday. There are other times where you, you want a freedom to pour out your heart. And for many people, it's hard to do that when you don't do it audibly. I think. So anyway, for whatever that's worth. Here's one thing I'm drawing from this text. As a dependent human being, as a genuine human being, this one person, two natures, divine, but, but we're talking about him in his human nature, it's not mixed with divine nature. Jesus was desperate to be alone with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as a human being, He was desperate. What stands out in this text is, quote, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And here, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, all night, I don't know. Two, four, six, eight. Hours, he was talking, listening, hearing, communing, worshiping. And as we're going to see in the text, particularly this night, something was on his mind. So why did he pray all night? Because he had a huge decision to make concerning which twelve men he's going to choose. Well, then why pray, Jesus? Because in His humanity it was not sufficient to know for sure. As a human being, He submitted and He prayed and prayed and prayed. Who are the twelve that I, in all of human history, this significant 
12, that I'm going to choose and send out with a unique representative authority and an extension of my ministry and my word and of my acts. Jesus was a genuine human being just like us, except He was without sin in sin nature. So in His humanity, as we have discussed, He placed His omniscience, His all-knowing, His omnipotence. He placed all of that into the Father's discretion. And so His unaided human understanding and knowledge was not enough to know for sure. And so God, do I, what, about, what about Goldberg here? What about Simeon? Is, is he one? This is what, he's got to be praying something like this. How, how, about, how about Peter? Yes, Peter. Okay. How about Judas? Yes, Judas. James and John? Yes. How about this one? No. He prays. And so what... He is choosing is radically significant. These particular men are being chosen to carry on His work after He's gone. They are being chosen to be His mouthpieces. This is how He's going to pray three years later about Him. Father, I have manifested Your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Okay. Jesus prays all night. Father, who? And the text says, then in mourning, he knows. And here he says, these are the ones you said. These are the men you gave me. And so after all night in prayer, he knew exactly the Father's will, as you read in verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So this was sovereign election, choosing of these. Now the question is, why twelve? Why not seven? Or fifteen? Or thirty-three? And, and, and the, we don't, I don't know, it's not crystal clear, but I think, along with many scholars, that most likely it is a reflection that these twelve with the new Israel, the new spiritual Israel that He's building is coming off of the idea of the twelve tribes of Israel. The, the twelve apostles of the new Israel coming out of the Old Testament, twelve tribes of natural Israel. Now, secondly, many people confuse the words disciple with apostle. All these apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. The word disciple, the, the Greek word is methetes. It means a learner. It means, it means a student who is who is basically clung to a rabbi to learn and to record and to listen and to repeat the rabbi's teaching. Every Christian should be a disciple. Apostle, from the Greek word apostolos, is actually 
a word that comes from two words, a paw, out of, in stello, to send, to send out. Apostolos is this idea that he's taking of his disciples, these twelve, for a particular office that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, Himself is commissioning, taking, and sending out of, and there's this idea of the one doing it is significant. In other words, when you're sent out from Him that way, you're not just, okay, I'm going to do my thing. You are the extension out of Him to go forth with His message, His Word. I mean, the idea of ambassador somewhat does work. When we have ambassadors in the countries of the world, that guy or that gal, they're not there to just make up their own treaties and say crazy stuff that they didn't get from the executive office of our country that says, this is what we're saying. They're there to deliver as the mouthpiece, the official stance of our government. This is the idea of these apostles. And in the New Testament, what unfolds is that those who are apostles are those men who have been personally appointed by Jesus. By the resurrected Jesus, even though He's not resurrected here, all the... Well, 11 of these guys will encounter Him again. Personally. In His body. To not only be encountered by Jesus in the resurrection, but then to be personally commissioned by Him as an apostle for the apostolic work. And therefore, along with the Old Testament Scriptures, along with the Word of God coming through other men, prophets that we have in the Hebrew Scriptures, the the teachings of these apostles is on par with the prophets. It is God's Word to man. And so in this text this morning, the Lord of the universe in His humanity, in His earthly ministry, called these twelve obscure men in order to transfer to them His authority in order that they would function in this very unique role in church history. This is a unique first century office. There is no minister. How great in church history. Let me name some great ones and significant ones. Aurelius Augustine, Tertullian, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, your favorite preacher today. There is no minister or pastor or pope or bishop or district supervisor uh, or denominational head or book writer or theologian that is an apostle. That has that authority over men's thoughts and lives and hearts. Every person must defer to these, the apostles' authority in order to submit to the authority of Jesus Himself. Jesus prayed all night and He chose out of the many disciples He had at this time, twelve. Let me reword that now. He prayed. Father, morning came. He's ready. And He chose 
Judas, Iscariot. Was it a mistake? Did he miss it? Did he not pray long enough? No, it's not a mistake. And so welcome to God's strange world. <laughs> and so, let me just, I don't have, I'm not going to spend much time, but I'm going to go to something that Jesus prays to the Father later. In John 17, verse 12, He says, Father, while I was with them, He's referring to His apostles, while I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay? So, when later, after Judas hangs himself, he's dead, there's 11. And Luke lets us know in Acts chapter 1, the 11 got together. Okay, who's going to replace Judas? How are we going to do this? We read in Acts 1, verses 21 to 22. So one of the men, they are saying, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, His ascension, 40 days after His resurrection. It's got to be a person, one of these guys, one of these men must become with us a witness of His resurrection. And so, Matthias becomes that guy. So, in a strict sense, when we talk about apostle here from this text this morning, there are no more Apostles after the first century. There are no Christians, ministers, or whatever who have that type of authority over the church. So in this sense, apostle is not equivalent to missionary. Now, there's another sense of the word apostles used in the New Testament being sent out, and there's a sense in that way of missionaries, that's what they're doing, extending the gospel to unreached people groups. And that was one thing that the apostles were doing. Okay? But by New Testament apostle, in this office that we see in the New Testament, we mean those who have been directly encountered by the resurrected Jesus and commissioned by Him for that apostolic work. And therefore, their word, their relaying as His sent one, the gospel, the message, the teaching, their word is Christ's very word. The Sea of Galilee after Jesus' brutal death, he's sitting there eating food. Peter, come here. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. What about this other apostle, John? Peter, Peter, you now. Feed my sheep. Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. What, what the heck? Paul, he's not in that list. Yeah. He's a strange case. And so is Jesus' brother, James. He's a strange case. Both of those guys were unbelievers for a while. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians because he knows he's a strange case. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 7 to 10, Paul writes, 
talking about the resurrection of Christ and His appearance to even over 500 at one time. I pick up in verse 7. And then He, Jesus, appeared to James. Jesus, His little brother. And then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born. Yeah, it's a weird case. Christ's message has been going on for a few years. He's crucified. He rises from the dead. At least these apostles are testifying He did. And they're preaching in Jerusalem. And and many Jews are flocking to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ raised from the dead, having died for their sin. And there's this guy named Paul, or Saul, and he's a Pharisee. And for at least numbers of months, if not a year or two, his goal in life is to stamp out this message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a weird thing. And so Paul knows his whole situation is different until one day while he's going up to Damascus in order to imprison more Christians, Jesus meets him, encounters Paul, appears to him, scares the living daylights out of him, causes him to be born again, and in a number of other occasions, in his resurrected body, appears to Paul and commissions him. Person, let me, where was I? I'll pick up. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. For Paul, because his situation was so weird, and he had enemies... He had so-called Christian enemies who would follow him in his apostolic work when he would plant churches in places where the gospel hadn't been. And these Jewish Christians, this sect that really thought that if they, okay, the Gentiles can come in and they can receive Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, but they've got to become Jewish culturally. That They come in and Paul's gone and then they'll come in and feed them all this other stuff. And Paul was angry. And what, what they would use against Paul is, see, Paul's not Peter. You know, he's not John, the son of Zebedee. He's not even James, Jesus' brother, who is an apostle. He's not them. Paul's just kind of got the gospel from them. You know, okay, so he's under that authority and we're here to correct his teaching. Because of that, Paul had to defend the reality that, no, I am not under them. I am on par with the other apostles. So he writes, starting in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, and this is the angriest letter that he wrote. Paul, an apostle. And then he goes off. Not from men, nor through man, or the agency of man, but directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Implication. This resurrected Christ appeared to me and commissioned me. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 of Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the Gospel that was preached by me, it is not man's Gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it. But I received it through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the best I'll do with Paul right now. These guys, the apostles, the the most significant thing about them, those who have been encountered by post-death, resurrected Jesus, and commissioned to the apostolic work, is that they are 
as the Old Testament prophets. Revelatory spokesmen. I don't mean enlightening words. I mean speaking God's very word. And the rest of us ever since are to rely on them along with the Hebrew prophetic books. All right. Let's go to the list then. Okay. Because here he is, all night praying. And he chooses 12, and we get a list. Now, you've seen list, we've heard list. Okay, okay, real briefly. In the New Testament, when it comes to the list of the apostles that Jesus sets apart here during his earthly ministry, there are four lists. One, in Matthew, he's got his list. Mark's got his list. And here in Luke, he's got his list. And the other list is Luke again in Acts 1. Same list, minus Judas Iscariot. John doesn't have a list. So that, that's all you got. Those are the lists of the apostles there. couple things. Peter is always listed first. Judas Iscariot is always listed last. The first four guys are always, even though there's some different orders of them, but they're always Peter and Andrew. And James and John, the brothers, are sons of Zebedee. Okay? Let's just go through the list real briefly. First on the list is Peter. Okay. This is Peter. This is Simon. Barjona, son of Jonah. Peter says, I got a new name for you. Rock. I mean, Peter says, Jesus says, I got a new name for you. Petros, Rock. Peter. Okay, so Simon, Peter, however you want to call him. Jesus renames him. Second on the list is his brother, Andrew. Andrew is the one who brought Peter to Jesus. That's what we know about Andrew. Next are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their dad. And the other thing about James and John, they are Jesus' cousins. That's what I said this week. And I'm not going to show you why now. I can show you why later. Okay, I don't want to spend the time showing you why. But their mom is Salome, who is Jesus' mom's sister. Now, James, the son of Zebedee, he is the first of the twelve to have been martyred. We see that in the book of Acts under Herod. Now, John, his brother, is John the Beloved, and, you know, Jesus liked him best, according to John. <laughs> he, he is the one who is at the cross, standing there with his own mom, and standing there with his aunt, Jesus' mom, and Jesus looks at him and says, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. John is the one who wrote the Gospel according to John. He wrote three epistles we have in the New Testament. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And he wrote because it was delivered to him personally by the messenger of the Lord on the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't mention earlier, Peter gave us in the New Testament, he wrote two letters, 1 Peter in Second Peter. And he really is attached also to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's not an apostle, but Mark was very close with Peter, or John Mark. and so, most, so many of these stories must have been coming also from Peter and being in ministry as a servant of Peter's. Now, all four of these guys, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were fishermen. That was their business, and they were in business together. Next on the list is Philip. Philip was from the same town as Peter and Andrew, Bethsaida. And if you remember, actually in John's Gospel, is Philip finds Jesus and I think this is the guy, this is the Messiah. And he goes and gets who? Nathaniel. John gives us that information. This is the Philip that in the upper room said, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Okay, that's that Philip. That's what we know about him. 
Next on the list is Bartholomew. Spend a little time here for a moment. Yeah, a couple things. Bartholomew in the list is always linked there with Philip. Philip and it's Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels means the first three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar. John's doing a whole different thing of what he gives of Christ's life in the words of Christ. Okay, So we've got the Synoptics and John. In the Synoptics, Philip and Bartholomew are always linked together. Now, most scholars think, and I, I think so, that this Bartholomew is Nathaniel. The same person. What do you mean? Simon, that's his name, Barjona. Barjona? Hey, Barjona! That's not his name, but he's known as that. Barjona. Bar means what? Son of Jonah. Peter was a Simon, son of Jonah. Bartholomew, son of Talamire. And so he's just known that way. He's, he's known by the Apostle John another way. Nathaniel's his name, his given name. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they never mention the name Nathaniel. John never mentions the name Bartholomew. In John 21, when he's mentioning five or six of the other apostles, with them he mentions Nathaniel. So, we deduce from all of that that Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person. Next on the list is Matthew. Matthew is the Levi we ran into in Luke already. The tax collector. He gave us the gospel according to Matthew. Next on the list is Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, because that just means he's, he's a twin. He's got a twin brother. He's known as the twin, Didymus. Tradition actually puts Thomas' as apostolic ministry in Persia. Next on the list is James, the son of Alphaeus. That's all we know about James in history. He's on the list. Next is Simon the Zealot, which means Simon belonged to that Jewish, very fundamentalist group that really had an emphasis, you know, not only on the Judaism, but with a willingness to even get violent against Rome. Why was that funny? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, and he picked Matthew, the tax collector, right? Yeah, okay. Who worked for Rome. Next is Judas, the son of James. In other words, not Iscariot. Okay. Now, when it comes to Judas, the son of James, again, many of the apostles you know, went by different names. Simon, okay, or Aramaic, Cephas, or, or Petros in the Greek. They went by different names. Here's another one, Judas, the, the one who is the son of of James. The reason I say that is because when you look in Matthew and Mark, there is no Judas, the son of James. Rather, there's Thaddeus, who's not in Luke's list. It's the same person. Two names. Now, when you come, oh, let's take that again. John. Okay, one of the apostles, writing his gospel. He never mentions a Thaddeus, but he does mention one of the other apostles who's named Judas. And he, he puts in there, parenthesis, not Iscariot. Because, no, no, no. <laughs> Again, that wasn't supposed to be funny. No, he does that to know this is another Judas. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. And last on the list is Judas Iscariot. Now, Iscariot is probably a family name that stems from the region that his family has come from. And that kind of name, that's what it sticks. Which means a, a region in Judea. Which actually makes Judas Iscariot the only one of these twelve who was not a Galilean. Not from north, up north in Galilee but in the region of 
Judea. And so, okay. Today, a couple thousand years later, some of us name our kids after these people. Okay. We, he doesn't have it in Luke's list, but we, we do have a middle name for one of our kids, Nathaniel. All right. Today, every one of these guys' names is well known. Don't miss it, though. When Jesus chose them, none of them are. They were unknown, ordinary, obscure guys like most of us. They were all Galileans except for Judas. Four of them were fishermen. There was a tax collector. There was a guy who belonged to that zealot group who's ready to go to war with Rome. Not one of them... Well. Matthew probably was fairly wealthy before he gave it up. The rest of them, no wealth there. They're not well connected. Got all these, okay? None of them were scribes or, or professional scholars or academics. None of them were priests working in the temple. They're stinking, common Galileans. That's how the leaders of the Jews spoke about them. Do you remember in Acts? Who are these people? They are, quote, unschooled, ordinary men, end quote. That's how the so-called elite class speaks of these. And so it was these 11 men that Jesus chose to be the new wine, the counterpart of the twelve tribes of Israel. And because of Jesus' bloody, sacrificial, purposeful laying down of His life and His resurrection and His commissioning these men and James, His brother, and Paul, they formed the inner circle, the inner core that conquered the known world eventually with the gospel of grace. And when we get to heaven, this ordinary, no-name group of guys will find engraved on the twelve foundations of the New Jerusalem their names. Quote, Book of Revelation 21, verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Tradition, throughout history, the tradition tells us that the apostle Peter was crucified upside down. That Bartholomew or Nathaniel himself, was crucified, that Thomas was speared to death, that James, the son of Zebedee, was killed under Herod, that Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome. Every one of them, except for John, the son of Zebedee, who died of old age, all the others died a bloody death because of their testimony. It wasn't merely passing on like I pass on. And God the Holy Spirit's convicted my heart of the truth of it. They are testifying. I touched Him. I talked with Him on many occasions after post-mortem. He ate and I ate with Him. He has risen. And they gave their life for that testimony. So, here's the application. None of us in here are apostles. And therefore, all the more we should feel the personal impact of what we read in this text. Jesus chose them sovereignly. He called them. He drafted them. There was no campaigning here. It wasn't pick me. He prayed. 
your one to be in this unbelievably significant office. It chose who? Ordinary. Nobodies. God has always gloried in taking non-spectacular persons in order to release His power through them. Moses, you're my man, but I can't talk very well. Okay, finally he got God mad, but He's not picking you because you're great, Moses. Or little shepherd boy David. Or a loud mouth, speak before you think. Blue collar fisherman named Peter. Most of us Christians in the world right now, today, the vast majority of us, not all of us, because God does pick Pauls sometimes, but the vast majority of, of us are very ordinary, average, everyday persons like them. Now, here's the only significant question. Did He choose you? Did He draft you? In other, what, what do you mean? In other words, has the light of the beauty of this person, Jesus Christ, shined in your heart? Have you embraced Him not for anything you are except for I bring my sin and my brokenness and my deserved condemnation and you realize the message says if I cling to Him, if I embrace Him, if I receive Him, His death was my condemnation being put away forever and His resurrection is the hope that I will definitely Rise with Him and be sinless because of Him then forever. In other words, is that you? Here's, here's the thing. We've got to get this text before we close in. He didn't make a mistake in choosing you. So when you look in the mirror, down... When you look in the mirror of your own heart in your own life a year after you've come to Christ or 50 years after and you know yourself in a way nobody else knows you except God. Like Peter, know this. He didn't make a mistake. This was Peter's hope when he denied ever knowing this arrested preacher. And because Jesus didn't make a mistake, he says, Go tell them and Peter. I've risen. And Peter will screw up a decade and a half later and give in to peer pressure in Antioch. But Peter, he didn't make a mistake. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But believers, apostles, and everyone else, Believers, we have this treasure in clay jars. So that, there's a purpose for it, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God could have done things all kinds of different ways, but He didn't. He did it this way. He chose sinners to save from their sin. And to leave them in this bewildering state of having come alive to Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and yet be beset with sin until the future 
day. It's how He's left it. And He did it in order for the Gospel in His power to work through these clay jars. The clay jar means your frail life. Not merely your physical body, but your soul. Who you are. You are a clay jar that contains the treasure of the message that saved you. The Gospel. So, your clay jar of ordinariness, ordinariness, being a wife and a dad, a retail worker, blue-collar worker, businessman, very ordinary, beset with weaknesses everywhere. That's His purpose. Those weaknesses are a gift to keep you more like the Jesus who went out all night to pray. To keep you dependent and desperate on God. Listen to how Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. I just just said what he said. But when asking and begging God, please let this crazy burden or whatever it is be gone from me. No. I won't. My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect. In weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, and hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because When I am weak, then in a different way, I'm strong. All of us are clay jars. But we, if we're in Christ, contain God, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we carry within our clayness the treasure of the Gospel. And God's intentions are to use Not some other extraordinary person, but very unimpressive you. The treasure is the thing, not the clay jar that contains it. And therefore, that brings me to the point of the whole text. We are clay jars of brokenness and therefore our hope our power in the Christian life is Jesus' example of verse 12 in these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus, in His humanity, in His mortality, lived a life of desperate prayer. A life of dependent. I've got to get away from my wife or husband, my children, my friends, and get with God. He did that. How dare any of us think we can go on living week after week after week in anything but humble, dependent, 
desperate prayer and communion with the Holy Trinity. This glorious God-man was radically dependent, radically in need of communion, and it led him and strengthened him for his ultimate ministry to go to the cross to put away the sin of all who will be saved. And God raised him from the dead and set him in his right hand and he is the high priest forever. He lives even now to pray and to make intercession for all those who have clung to him. And therefore the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are constantly saying to us, Come away. Come away alone with me and be filled, be energized, be enabled in your ordinary life to be used by the power of God, by the treasure of God which dwells in you. Father, we are desperate as we pray together now. And here's my prayer. Lead each of us this coming week in the months ahead to sense, to feel, and to react to the reality of our desperateness, of our dependence, of our need to get alone with you for life's sake, for the gospel's sake, for our marriage's sake, for our parenting's sake, that in all of it Christ be glorified.